0: chapter 4. Uh, I wasn't aware that that was going to be the song right before the sermon, but that reminds me of a good story. Uh, preacher said a few years ago, and you know, you know these preachers, it, it might have been true, it might not have been. I think this was actually true. This guy was preaching at a little church out in West Texas, and there was a fella that, well, how can we say this? Um, He did some picking and grinning and some drinking, and uh, uh, he played some of those uh, dives and those honky-tonks that they have out in West Texas. And uh, the preacher got to know this guy, and he started uh, a Bible study with him, and lo and behold, uh, this fella became a Christian. He was baptized into Christ, and so he got him in there, and he knew that the guy liked music. He could sing a little bit. And he encouraged him to start helping the church out to lead singing and you know look not every church is like this church you guys got about 15 deep in the song leading department all of them are really good some of those places don't have that many that can lead singing and this was one of those so the preacher thought we'll get this young guy this new young brother in uh, and, and work him into the song leading rotation well he didn't know many church songs he hadn't been a christian that long he knew you know a lot of willie nelson songs if you would not have fallen i would not have found you you know that kind of thing but you can't really sing that in church so they had to teach him some church songs and one of the ones that they taught him was this one at calvary years i spent in vanity and pride well there was an older sister in the church you know, the type, um, you know, just always kind of in a bad mood, kind of a sour disposition, and, well, it was a small town, and she knew about that guy, and, you know, he'd been uh, in the bars and in the dives, and he'd been chasing a few women and drinking, and she didn't like that. She was not for any of those things, you know, which none of us would be, I guess, but, uh, and she didn't really like that they were using this guy to lead singing. So, um, you know, she'd heard him a few times, and one of the only ones he knew was the song that we just sang together. So after one of the services a few months in, she went up there to the preacher and to that young man that led singing. She said, well, I got a problem with this, and he said, well, what's the problem? I just, I don't like, all he ever sings is that one song that he just did tonight, And by the way, I don't really like that song anyway. Years I spent in vanity and pride. I never spent years in vanity and pride. The preacher said, well, what about now? So um, (laughs) that's a way homer, if you don't get it, you'll get it on the way home. But uh, every time I hear that song, I think of that story. And I, I hope that that young brother, who's now an older brother, he's probably learned a few other songs to add to the repertoire. So hopefully we'll all live happily ever after. Uh, Speaking of songs, uh, one of my favorite bands, the uh, Irish rock band, U2, and their song, Invisible, include the following lyric. I'm more than you know. I'm more than you see here. I'm more than you let me be. I'm more than you know. A body in a soul. You don't see me, but you will. I'm not invisible, but I am here. There is no them. There is no them. There's only us. There's only us. There is no them. There is no them. There's only us. There's only us. There is no them. There is no them. There's only you, and there's only me. There is no them. The Lord's command in Ephesians 4 is for the church to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all." So if we're supposed to be one, why are we so many? If we're supposed to be united, why are we so divided? Addressing the divisions within the church at Corinth, Paul writes these words, I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you may agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then a couple of chapters later in chapter three, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Here, Paul explains the reason for the quarrels, arguments, rivalries, and divisions. The brothers and sisters at Corinth were immature, worldly, unspiritual, and selfish. Are you not mere men? reminds them that they were following merely human standards, not God's. You know, two millennia later, not a lot has changed. Everywhere we look, we see division. In the church, between races, and our political views. And too often, it seems as if the divide grows as people become more strident in their views and in demonizing those who disagree with them. Go back to the year 1960. 5% in that year of Republicans and Democrats said that they would be displeased if their child married someone from another party. By 2010, 49% of Republicans and 33% of Democrats said they would mind if that happened. Now, in 2024, I suppose if your child married somebody of a different political party, well, they would have to be exiled to the Isle of Elba or something worse. As the Buffalo Springfield said back in the day, battle lines are being drawn. And nobody's right if everybody's wrong. David Brooks makes some interesting observations about this shift toward disagreement, distrust, and the demonization of us versus them. So we're going to talk about a few of those points, and some of you might not like it, and I could not care less. I'm getting on a plane in about two hours and you know, boo-hoo-hoo, as the man said. But these things need to be said, and here's why. I am convinced that this is going to be a watershed year for the Lord's church, if not for our nation. Because you can already feel the tension being ratcheted up. And I'm worried about how our congregations are going to deal with this. Because let's face it, there's a lot more of the world in the church than there is of the church in the world. And if we act as if we're not being influenced and affected uh, by these shifting sands and these rising tides, we're not really being that honest. So I want you to consider three points and if we're about the business of God, if we're concerned about God's agenda and not merely human agendas, then we'll pay some attention to these three points because they're gonna continue to have an impact as we go forward. Number one, People's essential worth, too often, is being measured by a political label. Whether a person should be hired, married, trusted, or discriminated against is often, these days, determined by their political affiliation. Politics, in this sense, becomes a marker for basic decency. Those who are not members of the right party are deemed to lack compassion or loyalty to their country. We're seeing that already. Now, most folks in the church are polite enough that they're not going to, you know, put those claws out and be obvious about that. But I hear things, okay? I'm a preacher. People talk to me. You know, you got the sanctity of the confessional. I hear a lot of stuff that probably a lot of you don't hear. I can tell you what some of the folks are thinking. They're thinking exactly this. If you don't agree with me on this, there's something wrong with you. That's what they think. And we've got to push back against that. How are you going to measure the worth of a person by their party affiliation or by how they vote or if they vote? I, I true confessions. I, I used to vote in most of the elections, and the last few, I haven't voted in all of them. And my brother-in-law said, well, if you don't vote, you don't have the right to complain. I said, wrong. If I pay taxes, I have the right to complain, okay? When they quit taking my money, then I'll shut up. But, you know, sometimes I see the choices, and I'm like, I don't like him, and I don't like him, and I'm not voting for either one of them. You say, well, I don't know about, look, you can think what you want about this. Here's what I'm saying. Don't miss the point. You can't measure the worth of a person by a political label. You cannot do that. That's a person created in the image of God. That's a person for whom Jesus died. And because they don't agree with you on this or that or another issue, they're not a person of worth. That's just a wrong headed assumption. And we ought to be ashamed that any of that ever creeps into the church. It certainly shouldn't. Here's another point that Brooks makes. As personal life is being demoralized, political life is being hyper moralized. What do we mean by that? Well, this people are less judgmental these days about different lifestyles. You know, it, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, uh, if you're straight or you're gay or you're trans, according to some people, you can live whatever life you want to live. You know, every once in a while, I'll be reading the paper, uh, uh, reading a story about somebody, and it, it's obviously a, a woman that they're talking about. I mean, I think it's a woman. She looks like a woman. She's got hair like a woman. But then they'll say, her, profi- her pronouns are they and them. I'm like, shut up, okay? You're, know, you're, you're not they and them. You're she and her. No, I'm they and them. Well, look, I've read Walt Whitman. I contain multitudes. I get that. You're either a guy or you're a girl. You're not both and you're not everything. And as one pseudoscientist said, there's not two genders. There's 146 different genders. At that point, I lose interest and I usually walk away because I don't want to hear that kind of nonsense. Having said that, You can pretty much do or think or be anything you want, and no one in these United States today will judge you. But here's what's interesting. They are more judgmental about policy labels. More people are building their communal and social identity around these policy labels. Just look at a few of them. Those would be some that people would identify with. Well, here's the thing. Your political label in these times becomes the prerequisite for membership in your social set. I've rarely seen a person who is completely liberal about things, or completely conservative, or completely libertarian. Most of us are kind of a combination and a mishmash of those, but the point is, political life, is being the be-all, end-all of human existence. I, I read about six or eight newspapers a day. I subscribe to the New York Times, to the Washington Post, to the Detroit News, to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and I usually peruse a few others every single day. I read these things. One of my favorite things to read is the New York Times. I think it's the best newspaper in the world, although it is heavily tilted to the liberal end of the continuum. There's no two ways about that. They got a couple of token conservative or middle of the road riders, but most of the folks are left of center. But despite, despite having all of those interesting stories, my favorite thing to read are not the stories, they're the comments section. You ever read the comments section? Oh my goodness. It's just, I don't know that there's ever been a time. And I'm including the Civil War in this, when people have been more divided in their opinions about things. I read a story yesterday about this little school in Hillsdale, Michigan. I've known about it forever, Hillsdale College. Uh, I'm friends with the cousin of the president, Larry Arnn, a great Winston Churchill scholar. Anyway, that's not the point. I read the story, very long, very interesting, some thoughts that, that, w- that would be really uh, provoking on both sides about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. But the comments section, the comments section was priceless. And basically, it, it, 95% of the people, that man is evil, and those people must be stopped. I'm like, look, I don't agree with everything he does either, but he's evil? You know, he's of the devil, he's the Antichrist, that's where we are in this day and time. As personal life is being demoralized, it doesn't matter what you believe in your personal life, your political life is being hyper And if you're a Republican, you're this, and if you're a Democrat, you're that. And if you're a Libertarian, you're something else, you know, it just, it, it, it never ends. And you can see this getting worse and worse and worse until eventually there's going to be a tipping point. Very closely related to that is point number three. Political campaigns imply that elections are completely about good versus evil. Do you understand that most of the time, the message of political ads isn't about whether the top tax rate will be 36% or 39%. That's not what the ads are about. The ads are about the existential fabric of life itself. It turns into a Manichean struggle of light versus darkness, righteousness versus wickedness. And when schools, community groups, and workplaces get defined by political membership, when speakers get disinvited from campus because they're beyond the pale, then every community becomes dumber because they can't reap the benefits of diverging viewpoints and competing thoughts. Now think very carefully about that last statement. We don't get the benefit of diverging viewpoints and competing thoughts. Maybe the most famous political couple, I'm not sure now, but certainly 30 years ago, are these two. Anybody recognize those two? That is James Carville, the Raging Cajun, and Mary Madeline. Carville was largely responsible for Bill Clinton getting elected. So if you don't like that, you can direct your hate mail to him, I suppose. But he was the one that came up with the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. And then, you know, Perot throws in as a third candidate and splits the ticket and Clinton sneaks in. Okay, Carville is a Democrat. Mary Madeline is a Republican. You know what their relationship with each other is? They're married, husband and wife. By all observances and appearances, they love each other and they get along. I've seen both of them on camera in interviews. They argue like cats and dogs blah, 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 blah. blah. And yet these two folks have figured something out that a lot of people even in the church haven't figured out that it's possible, listen to me, it's possible to disagree with someone and still respect them. It's possible not to see eye to eye on every single issue and you can still love that person. Anytime we boil everything down to a death struggle of good versus evil in the political realm, we are being utterly foolish. Because you realize most of these people are play actors anything. And a lot of them would do or say just about anything to get elected. And I find it refreshing that these two actually have a healthy relationship, as far as I can tell. But you know, this mentality tends to ruin human interaction. There's a tremendous variety in human beings within each political party. To judge human beings on political labels is to deny and ignore what is most important about them. It is to profoundly devalue them. That is the core sin of prejudice, whether it's racism or partyism. Brooks says this, the personal is not political. If you're judging a potential daughter-in-law on political grounds, your values are out of whack. This innate human tendency to degenerate into an us-versus-them mentality is one of the reasons that David Lipscomb cited for having nothing to do with the political realm. You realize that David Lipscomb, who was the editor of the Gospel Advocate and who lived during the time of the Civil War, his farm there, which is today the campus of Lipscomb University, it changed hands about a dozen times during the Civil War. The South would hold it, then the North would push them back, and then they'd take it, and it just went back and forth, forth and back the whole time. And the Civil War changed Lipscomb. It changed him greatly. He noted that the Christians in the first century loved the kingdom of God more than the kingdom of man. They loved the church more than they loved their native country. And then he compared his 19th century brethren with the early Christians. He said this, very few Christians of the north and south gave ground for such suspicions during the Civil War. But at the behest of their rulers they slay their brethren in christ making their wives widows and their children's orphans and starving them that's really interesting lipscomb said as christians we ought to be about the business of god lipscomb didn't even think you should vote now obviously most folks in the church didn't agree with him on that i wouldn't think that most of them agree with him today But here's something I hope that you can take from that philosophy. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are a lot more than whatever their political affiliation is. And in a church this large and this sophisticated and this diverse, you're gonna have some people that are gonna be voting for different people. They're gonna line up on some different issues. And my friends, it's time for God's people To get as passionate about him as they are about their political party. To get as excited about serving as voting. To get as concerned about the lost as they are their own agenda. To get as committed to loving each other as loving their candidate. To get as determined about pursuing unity as pushing our own differences. I mentioned to you that Pinnacle is a pretty unique congregation. We've got people from all backgrounds, from all the ethnic groups, from all walks of life. And I hope that you would know, if I really, truly believed that there was only one side and one side alone that was true, I would get up and say that. I would. I think I'm courageous enough to do that. I don't. And I don't want the church to be splintered into several pieces because of the nonsense of politics. I don't. And we tell people right up front when they come into Pinnacle and we've got visitors coming in every week, every month. You know, nobody's going to ask you how you vote. Nobody's going to ask you how much money you're worth. Nobody's going to ask you who your daddy was or where you grew up. Those things don't matter. What matters is this. Do you love God? Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to sell out to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and give everything that you have to him and to him alone? If you're willing to do that, we're not going to make these other things a test of fellowship. You know, and that's not original to me. I think, if anything, we're basically plagiarizing the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, And purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others." Brethren, there is no them. There's only us as children of God. That's what he's calling us to be. My hope and my prayer for this church and for the church universal is that we get united behind serving Jesus Christ and that we don't get distracted by being pulled off to the left or pulled off to the right or that we're all behind this candidate or that candidate. Look, I'm not telling you how to vote. It's none of my business. I'm telling you this. It would be a tragedy if we allowed our churches to be weakened and to be divided and to be broken by political affiliation, it just would. We don't need to do it. There is no them. There's only us, the children of God. We talked in the earlier lesson about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Do you really understand historically what was involved in what he did there? It was, it was unprecedented. I'll give you a crash course in, in, in a history lesson as we close, okay? The Samaritans were a mixed race of people, but it wasn't anything that they were trying to do themselves. Here's what happened. When the the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the nation of Judah in the south, the nation of Israel in the north, Israel fell to foreign powers before Judah did. Judah held out until 586 BC against Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, but the, the northern kingdom of Israel, in the, they fell in 722 to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a horrible bunch of people. They would skin people alive. They would make pyramids out of severed human heads. They were experts in torture. And one of the things that they did on conquered populations is they would take the leading citizens from this place, And they would exile them hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And they would bring other conquered peoples from different places. And they would move them in in their place. So what you ended up with in the northern kingdom of Israel, you had Assyrians and Babylonians and Akkadians and Hittites and you name it. And you had people from those different foreign countries living there and they settled in. The problem was never about bloodlines. The problem was never one of racial superiority uh, as ignorant as the Nazis were in the 1930s and 40s with that. The problem as far as the Jews were concerned was religion. They brought their various religious beliefs, their gods, their goddesses, their religious practices, and they engaged in a syncretistic form of religion. So it wasn't the God of the Old Testament that the Samaritans were following. It was partially the God of the Old Testament and partially the gods of the Assyrians and partially the gods of the Babylonians and so on and so forth. So by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews because they had a mongrelized religion. And the Jews didn't approve of it. If you remember, what did Jesus say to the woman? He didn't duck the question. He said, you Samaritans worship here. We Jews worship in Jerusalem because we worship what we know. We worship God. He's telling them God is the one that we worship, not a combination of various gods and goddesses. But to the point, these people were ostracized politically, They were ostracized racially. Most importantly, they were ostracized religiously. And what did Jesus do? He respected her. He talked to her. He loved her. Can we do any less with our own brethren? My prayer is that we don't allow the conflict of politics to diminish our commitment to the Lord. We cannot do that. We can't. And whatever your political views are, understand I'm not trying to push up on you and bully you. I'm not, it's not my business. But it is my business to encourage you to follow the Lord with all of your heart. And don't allow the ugliness of political conflict and division to ruin a loving church. You know, the whole point of this weekend was to recognize that the church is a home. But is it just a home for people that vote a certain way? Is it just a home for people that look a certain way? Is it just a home for people that live in a certain zip code? Or is it a home for everyone? You realize Jesus came not just for a certain group of people. He came for everyone. The most famous passage of scripture, John three sixteen, for God so loved what? The world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how God sees us. We must see each other the same way. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you've allowed conflict and opinion and politics to color the way you see other people, ask God to forgive you. If you need to come publicly, that's up to you. But don't allow the ugliness of political engagement to ruin the beauty of Christian commitment. We cannot make that mistake. If you're here and you've yet to obey the gospel, there's always the right time to do that. And you realize what the Christians in the first century did When they made the good confession and said, Jesus is Lord, you know what they were also not saying? They were saying, Caesar is not Lord. It's either Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord. We need to decide today, which is it? As for me, I'm going to say that Jesus is Lord, and you need to say the same thing. If you're subject to the invitation of the Jesus who is Lord, we invite you to come as we stand. stand.